morning, as we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, many of you have wondered, you know, what is it that Jesus taught? What was the essence of the teaching that he gave and what importance was it? Well, it was life-changing importance for those who heard it. In fact, Matthew records for us in chapters 5 through 8 what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus lays out what is in essence his teaching concerning the good life, the good life. And so in you, as you and I begin to, to approach these eight different characteristics of the kingdom life, uh, I want to be very clear with this. As we approach the eight different characteristics of kingdom life, this is what Jesus said would happen to those who heard and believed and followed him. For those who don't do that, this will not be their experience. They will look for life in other ways and not find it. But he says, for all those who want life, come to him and he would give it abundantly. That's very interesting, isn't it? We, we went through last week and discovered as a, as, a, as a pretext from getting into chapter 5 that throughout chapter 4, Jesus taught one single message to the people in his day when he walked on the earth. Repent. For the kingdom of God is near. And we discovered that this repentance was a, a turning away from sin and to God. It was turning away from the idea that I can be good enough to face God on my own. I can do enough good in my life to outweigh the bad so that when I stand before God, he'll let me into heaven. That I can stand blameless before him, without accusation, without anyone to point at me and say, this guy really blew it. Jesus said, you better repent of that because no one's going to be able to stand before God. No one. And then he said, the kingdom of God is near, meaning that the reign of God that comes upon those who will yield to him, Jesus, is about to come upon you if you will just be prepared. And here's what we found out, that there were many people who heard Jesus but missed it. They missed it. Here now the word of God as we turn in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 1 through 3. And I invite you now to ask the Holy Spirit to begin softening your heart to receive his word. Now when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up to up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Let's do. Father, we ask that in these short moments you would instill in our hearts the essence of what Jesus was teaching concerning what it means to be poor in spirit. For your glory and our salvation, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we saw last week, that these beatitudes are the keys to happiness in life. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. He's saying if you'll take him seriously at his word, if you will believe upon what he has, what he has proclaimed, and follow it in your life, you will find happiness, you will find satisfaction, you will find contentment in a way the world cannot give. That's a pretty big claim, isn't it? I mean, who can really 
offer that kind of claim today, much less who can be believed in making it. And when you and I look at these beatitudes, we found that these beatitudes are descriptions or, or commendations of the good life. In other words, when, when Peter was asked the question with the other disciples by Jesus, who do men say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed, makarios is the Greek word, makarios, Peter, blessed are you, happy. Congratulations, you got it. You hear it? And so when you go through the Bible, you will find Beatitudes written all over the place. But in this distillation in chapter 5, Jesus lays out eight of these Beatitudes that specifically speak to the life that is yielded to him by repentance and faith and understanding the purpose of his coming and establishing his kingdom. And so as we get into this, one of the things that you really must remember is that word blessed is something we really don't get anymore in English. Uh, I don't know about you, but as I said last week, ra being raised in South Carolina, the only time I heard the, way heard the word blessed was when some woman was talking at tea with another and said, bless their heart. They don't know what they're doing. You ever heard that? So that's, that's about the context of blessing for us. Here's the real understanding of this word. It's a word that can't be quite captured in English. It's, its idiom is really quite foreign to the English language. And so we call it blessed. We call it happiness. Fort, fortunate is more in accord with the Greek understanding of this word. But when you come to that word blessed, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. Jesus is saying congratulations, you've got it. You're so fortunate. And lest we think that our insights brought that to us, that somehow we had some miraculous power that just turned on a light and suddenly we saw the light. It wasn't us who did it. It was God. It was God who revealed it for us, who made us, who made us aware of its presence, who, who literally allowed us to see. This is why John Newton writes his, uh, his song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was blind, but now I'm found, was lost, but now I see. It wasn't that he never heard the gospel before. It wasn't that he never heard about Jesus before. What changed? It was something that God had done in John Newton's life at that moment in his life where he began to see the wretchedness of his life without God. And so as we get into this passage in the sermon that Jesus is teaching, I find it quite interesting. It's probably the most powerful sermon that anyone could ever study. I have talked to Esther, and she was saying in the schools that she's teaching, they're actually instructing the kids to memorize these eight Beatitudes. Why would you do that? Because they're the way to have a good life. If you want a good life, Jesus says, take heart in these words. And so when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what is he talking about? Well, please note that regardless of how you view poverty or where it might be, the language of poverty is a language of neediness. If anyone is in poverty, they are in need. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Most people would recognize they have needs, but they would believe that they could fulfill those needs, that they could earn enough money, have enough sex, have enough friends, be popular enough in, 
in, in the town that they live that somehow their needs would be met. But this kind of neediness goes far beyond just an economic neediness. The neediness that Jesus is addressing is basically a neediness that is a need for charity in life, for caring about others, for having a compassion not only for people who are strangers and friends, but even in your own life, a compassion for living. And so when we look at this word poverty of spirit, we're speaking not just about a need that we have for living life and being loved and loving others. It is not, a, is not just necessarily a deprivation that Jesus is addressing. That may happen. We may go without food a couple of days or months. We might go without money. But the deprivation that Jesus is addressing here is a deprivation that marks a distressed life that has no meaning, no purpose, no satisfaction. In other words... That person, whoever it is who has poverty of spirit, has tried everything else to make them happy. And nothing has satisfied. There's a brilliant story that was once written about the great lover who seduced so many women. Do you remember his name? I can't remember it. I looked it up and looked it up and I could not find his name. It was a French name. He was a great lover. He seduced women over and over again. The most amazing thing is that the story goes that when he died, the devil met him face to face and told him that he was being consigned to hell for his lifestyle of where he had seduced women and cast them away. And the man pleaded for mercy and the devil said, sure, I'll give you mercy. I will let you parade through the women you have destroyed and then if you can tell me one, just one who really loved you and you can tell me her name, I will free you from the pangs of hell. And one by one, the women were brought before him and he could not remember their name or their face until finally after hundreds had passed by, he threw himself on the ground weeping and gnashing realizing that on all the pleasures that he had pursued and all the lives he had been with, he had gained nothing but the damnation of knowing that he was loved, but he never loved. Now that is damning. This is the poverty of spirit that Jesus speaks about. And he says... The person who comes to an awareness of their poverty is blessed. When you become aware of how empty the things you have pursued in life that promised happiness don't, Jesus says, congratulations. You see, the essence of what Jesus is teaching is that when a person has poverty of spirit, they come to a place where they know that that poverty is caused by an inadequacy of knowing God. I had the occasion of being befriended by a couple who I married who are not members of this church and are who, well, who are well known because of their professions in Charlotte. They come from very prominent families. 
the gentleman I got to know because he had visited here during the summer as they would vacation on Lake Norman. His wife contracted cancer and died a horrible death, but yet died in the faith. The woman, her husband, also died of cancer and was a close friend of the gentleman I'm speaking of. So that when both couples had lost loved ones, the two that survived, being friends, began to date. And as they began to date, they came to me and said, would you counsel us for marriage? And I was just so honored. I thought, boy, if they're looking for me for wisdom, they're barking up the wrong tree. But I certainly was welcoming their, their invitation and got to know them. And as we talked about marriage and the challenges they faced in blending their families together now that their spouses had been gathered to be with the Lord. And as they talked about the challenges, we began to laugh and cry and we began to think about their future. And in the midst of all of that conversation, he looked at me one day and he said, you know, there's going to be a really wonderful event in Charlotte I want you and your wife to come to. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, uh, sure. You know, I was thinking it was something like in the basketball arena or maybe the new baseball stadium, something simple, right? No, it turned out to be a high society black tie event. And when I said, well, what should I wear? He said, oh, just wear your best suit. And I said, well, what will everybody else be wearing? And he said, well, it's a black tie. Well, I didn't know enough about that to know what a black tie was. So I went and Googled it and looked it up. And for those of you who were like me from the redneck section of South Carolina, a black tie event is basically a tuxedo event. It's where people dress to the T's, to the nines, whatever you want to say it. And I didn't have a tuxedo. So I called the guy up and said, look, I don't have a tuxedo. Should I rent one? Heavens no. You come just as you are. And I thought, you're kidding, right? No, no, I'm not. I want you to dress in your... So for those of you who are really worried because you know I don't pick out things well, Cindy picked out the suit and the tie. It really looked good. It looked sharp. I mean, I look pretty good for a pastor. And as we were there getting ready, I began to think, you know, Cindy, I'm going to be the only one there in a tux. This is going to be awkward. She said, honey, he said it would be fine. So we got in the car and we went down to this event. And sure enough, as we got in there, you know how it is, ladies, I, I identify with you. I walked into the room and it was like every man I saw had a tuxedo on. Some of you women are laughing. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? And this awkward feeling that I didn't belong began to awash of my mind and my heart. And I began to recoil, thinking, I am not anybody. I am nothing. Yeah. His wife came over and she began to talk with us and she said, she said, I just want to sit with the two of you. And we looked at her like, why? And she said, I see these people all the time. I know what they're really like. I would much rather know who you are. And I was blown away. Why? Because I had taken on the worldly mantle of thought 
that my worth was in what I owned or what I possessed. And when Jesus was speaking to the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, everyone there lived that way also. You see, in Jesus' day, if you were anything, you had to either be a teacher or a con artist. You had to be someone who taught the law of God in such ways that you elevated yourselves above others to their shame, or you had to be a tax collector who embezzled from others to gain wealth. Those were the extremes. And the most amazing thing is that when Jesus begins to preach about this poverty of spirit, he's talking about coming to that insight or that acceptance that my condition is one of humbleness before the God who created me because I am not dressed in the clothes that he expects of me. I am not blameless or sinless or without fault. I am a sinner who has failed to obey his law. I have rejected who he is. In fact, I have screamed in the top of my lungs, there is no God. And in doing so, I have condemned myself in his court. And in the midst of that, Jesus appears and begins to invite people who are not aware of who God is and invites them to know him and to receive him. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Isn't that beautiful? Two things happen when we're confronted by our sins. Did you know this? Two things happen. If you come to God's word and you recognize that you're sinning, let's say, let's say you're doing something wrong like stealing. The Bible says you shall not steal. Well, when you look at that and you begin to study it, it means that not only you won't personally steal, but you won't allow someone else to steal that you know they're doing something wrong. So if you're at work and you see someone taking a, a screwdriver or a wrench or pocketing some money that didn't belong to them, and you don't do anything about it, you just watch it and say, well, it's not my problem. According to God's law, you were just as guilty as the person who stole it. Did you know that? In other words, in God's economy, he will not tolerate those who steal, nor will he tolerate those who tolerate those who steal. I, I think about adultery in our day and how prevalent it is. When, when adultery is such a horrendous thing to marriage, it's amazing to me how God says, you shall not commit adultery. And the Pharisees would say, well, we're not, that's not us. We don't commit adultery. But then Jesus goes a little further and says, if you've done it in your heart, you've already done it. No one would have said that. And yet, if you know someone who's committing adultery, if you know someone who's living immorally, and you do nothing you're just as guilty in God's eyes for tolerating it. You say, well, what business is it of mine? Well, in the church, we're called to hold each other to a standard of submitting to Christ. And so that's why we have elders. Those elders are charged with the spiritual life of the congregation. And if one of us is falling into sin, it is their loving, compassionate duty to come and say, gosh, don't do this. You do not want to go down that road. 
it is dishonoring Christ. And so when that happens, when those moments come, when we read God's word and we're confronted by what God says is wrong, one of two things comes out of our hearts. Either we try to justify ourselves. Well, you know, maybe it's just this once. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm forgiven, right? I'm in the cross. I'm in the, the blood of Christ. I've been shed with, I mean, I'm covered with the blood he shed for me. I have been saved. I've been re- renewed. I, I'm a child of God. And, and therefore, because there's no, no law, because I'm under grace, then I can live however I want. It's, a, it's called self-justification. Or they're just simply ignoring it. Uh, when you're in darkness, when you're not a Christian, when you, when you are living in that darkness where you're not out to please God or live for God, you're out to live for yourself. You don't really care what God thinks. So you just ignore it. That's one way we approach it. The other way is we repent. I'm wrong. I need to change. Jesus is teaching in this poverty of spirit that this poverty of spirit comes when we are confronted with our sins and we go, Oh, God, have mercy on me. God, why does my heart do this? Why does my mind go down these roads? It's at that point that says you're blessed. You're blessed. Why? Because instead of justifying it, excusing it, you've acknowledged it for what it is. And Jesus says it's the first characteristic of the Christian that we are constantly aware of our neediness for God's love and forgiveness constantly. It is for that reason Jesus goes on and says that when we come into that knowledge of that predicament we're in, that we look at ourselves in our poorest state and we begin to see it in terms of how it is the absence of God, not the presence of God that is our problem. It is the, the, the fact that we cannot undo this power that is at work, this sin that is a, a, a power in my heart that leads me away from God. And more importantly, I need someone to help me with it because I cannot control it. And I long for the God who will come and save me from it. Jesus says, you've got it. You're blessed. And he says, for those people who come to that understanding, you're blessed because the kingdom is yours. What? The kingdom of God is yours. How so? Because you understand repentance. You understand it. You get it. Others may not. They may think you're crazy. But you know you got it, don't you? When you think of the kingdom of heaven, it's mentioned about 38 times in Matthew. It's a central teaching of Jesus as far as what this this message is about that he's bringing. And it talks about not just a kingdom that has boundaries. 
It's not a kingdom that has, has borders. It is a kingdom where people who are repentant need God and understand their neediness for God in such measure they repent and they trust in Christ alone. And in that trusting in Christ, God begins to reign in their hearts. He begins to guide them, direct them. They become very concerned as far as what God's expectations are, what, what is pleasing to God, what is, what is holiness before God, what is uh, the practice of my sexuality before God, the, the practice of my anger before God, the practice of everything in my life. How does it factor in a relationship with God? Where does that fit in God's relationship with me? And the most amazing thing is that this kingdom rule that Jesus talks about is a kingdom rule that comes to every believer where they want to now submit to the Lord, not out of obligation, but out of love, out of thankfulness, out of gratefulness for what Jesus Christ has done. And even more so that this kingdom now is being inaugurated as Jesus has come into the world, Matthew says, and it's a kingdom that is beginning but its completion will be done when he returns again. Well, what about till he comes? Well, that is where the battle is, isn't it? That's where the real battle of the Christian faith is, isn't it? It is in that realization that I am one who continually lives with this knowledge of the poverty or the poverty of my spirit because I am not what God intends me to be yet. I have been given the first fruits of what God is going to finalize and complete when Christ returns. And so this whole idea of the kingdom is it is beginning right now when I receive Christ and God is at work in our hearts. He is there to mature us, to sanctify us, to move us in a direction that is pleasing to God. But there's coming a day when the presence of sin will be removed from the world. And at that point, the Bible says we will be glorified like Jesus was after the resurrection. That sin will no longer have any influence anymore. Let me tell you, for people in Jesus' day, that kind of message brought great hope. And today, it still does. That I can cry out in the midst of my poverty of spirit, recognizing where I don't live wholly before God when I say, God, have mercy upon me. Have you ever done that? Haven't you ever looked back on your life and looked back at the things that you've done? Th oh, man, I wish I hadn't have done that. Well, what do you do with that? You just kind of grieve it? Not for the Christian. The Christian finds blessingness in saying, God, oh, God, mercy, forgive me. Thank you for freeing me from it and giving me the hope of a new life. Isn't that glorious? This is the power that Paul spoke about in Colossians. You Colossians, I want you to know God so that you can live a life worthy of your calling. But I also want you to know the power of God so that you will persist. You'll not give up. You'll continue to follow him. I pray that for you.
Because the truth of the matter is, when a person comes into that knowledge of Christ, they come into a, a continual battle. Well, I know God enough to please him. Or will I go back to the old way of life and do what I think is right? Jesus says the characteristic of one who has come to know the kingdom is one that cries out, Oh God, have mercy, have mercy. And this is one of only eight that are characteristics of the believer's life. And you know what's glorious about this? The joy, the peace. The overwhelming satisfaction in being able to come to God in such honesty. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, you, you are not a God of deception. You are a God of revelation and clarity and light. And so as we pray this morning, we pray in that vein that you would give us that knowledge of the poverty of our spirits that we might turn from our sins and believe upon your son. That we might believe that through him we have the forgiveness of sin. That through him we have the promise of the resurrection. That through him we have the gift of eternal life. That is that we have now come to know God and the one he, through the one he has sent. And so as we stir our faith up in going through the Sermon on the Mount, God, it is our, our desire. It is our desire to not be like the world where we would justify or somehow excuse or, or paste over something in our life. No, we, we want to walk in the freedom that Christ brings. And that freedom begins when we recognize the poverty of our lives. And our neediness of Jesus. And for that reason, bless our hearts and our minds in the knowledge of him who loves us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together.